I am trying to figure out what happened to the missing body of an insurgent religious leader 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine. If you want to get technical about it, and apparently I do, I am trying to figure out what happened to a Jewish rabbi who history calls Jesus of Nazareth after he was crucified by the Roman government because a conservative religious group was frustrated by his claims to be God. This strange weekend that happened right outside of Jerusalem remains one of the most controversial events in human history. The details are fascinating, and the volume of documentation surrounding the case is staggering. And yet, I still have the question, did Jesus of Nazareth really rise from the dead? Or did something else happen? Was his body stolen or misplaced? Did he actually even die that Friday on top of Golgotha? the hill he was allegedly killed upon? Or is this all a part of some elaborate hoax, an effort to gain religious power and notoriety? After countless hours of studying this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever imposed on the minds of human beings, or it is the most remarkable fact of human history. I am not a detective, a historian, or even a reporter, but I have begun to realize how difficult it is to sift through all the bias and presupposition that surrounds this case. It's drenched in debate, clouded by emotion, and if somehow a smoking gun were to be found that proved Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, then the world's largest religion would come crashing down like a house of cards. In my investigation, I came across Lee Strobel. Lee is a graduate of Yale Law School and an award-winning investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Lee knew how crucial the resurrection was to the case of Christianity, so he set out to try and disprove it. So Lee, you decided to try to disprove the resurrection? Well, because my wife became a Christian and we started to have conflict in our marriage because all of a sudden our worldviews were were clashing. And so I thought if I could rescue her from this cult that she got involved in, then everything would go back to normal, you know. So I thought if I could disprove the resurrection, I could, which I figured would take a weekend, you know, it can't be that hard. Um, You know, (laughs) then I could get her out of this cult. That was my plan. So you've got Lee a brilliant academic, an accomplished investigative reporter, and a self-proclaimed atheist out to prove that the resurrection of Jesus is all a hoax. Now, this is a note that I have found to be extremely interesting throughout my investigation. Why do people who do not believe in Jesus devote such large amounts of time and money, some people even devote their lives, to trying to prove that this story is fabricated? I don't know what to think about that yet but it is interesting and gripping to say the least. Okay, let me give you what we know to be historically accurate and agreed upon by almost all biblical and secular historians about this cold case. A man named Jesus was born early in the first century, most likely around 3 BC. Seemingly overnight, the popularity and notoriety of Jesus begins to grow large enough for both Jewish and Roman Greco historians to begin to write about his life. For somewhere between one to three years—there is some debate about that number—Jesus of Nazareth garners himself quite the following. Crowds of people are following him around. Even larger crowds are showing up to hear him speak and perform what some called miracles. 
Whether these reported miracles are legit or some form of magic or illusion, there is still great debate. Early on, Jesus practiced and was viewed as a Hebrew rabbi, a teacher and authority on Judaism. Then historians say, in either AD 30 or AD 33, the cold case in question begins to pick up steam. As Jesus of Nazareth was arrested and tried before the Sanhedrin, which is a Jewish judicial body, the Sanhedrin judges Jesus as a heretic who claimed to be God. He was then handed over to the Roman ruler Pontius Pilate, where he was judged as a political criminal. Over the course of just eight hours, from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m., Jesus faces six trials— three religious, and three political trials. These trials are documented by Jewish and Roman historians. All three religious trials found Jesus guilty, and all three political trials found Jesus innocent. The Roman ruler Pontius Pilate determines to let Jesus go, but then things take a turn. The crowd becomes aggressive and hostile, and Pilate caves to the pressure and hands Jesus over to be executed. Jesus then experienced a public execution by crucifixion between two other criminals. Crucifixion was the popular form of capital punishment at that time in the Roman Empire. It was brutal, barbaric, and inhumane. The criminal would have their arms and legs nailed to a cross, and then they would hang there until they suffocated on their own blood. The Romans were experts in this form of capital punishment. The process was practiced and precise. But here's where the case starts to get controversial. One theory, the swoon theory, has been proposed that states Jesus didn't actually die upon the cross, but that he merely passed out and then woke up later. Lee Strobel says he investigated these claims in his research. First of all, I found that there's no dispute among scholars that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Uh, the famous atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludeman says it's historically indisputable that he was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says that based on the historical and medical evidence, that Jesus was clearly dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Okay. So we have no scholar, historian, or doctor saying they believe Jesus could have survived crucifixion. We actually have no record of anyone surviving a crucifixion. I found this particularly interesting. Jesus' death by Roman crucifixion is found in seven independent documents. Three of those sources were hostile to Christianity, including Josephus, Tacitus, and Marabar Serapian. I practiced saying those names three times. It is statistically impossible for seven independent sources to all make up the same story. The likelihood of seven independent sources fabricating the same lie is not probable. So the question is answered. Jesus of Nazareth died that day on a Roman cross. He did not pass out go unconscious, and then wake up later to trick people that he rose from the dead. He died. It's a historical fact. So what happens next? This part of the case is extremely important. Up to this point, things are public. Jesus is tried and executed before witnesses. 
Crowds of people watch him die. Doctors and historians say he died. But what happens to his body after that? How does the Roman Empire lose the body of such a high-profile political criminal? How does the body of Jesus of Nazareth just up and vanish? Here's what we know. Three days after Jesus was executed, a group of women go to his burial site and find that the body is gone. The tomb is empty. Jesus is up and vanished. But let's not jump to conclusions. Just because the tomb is empty, that doesn't indicate or conclude that Jesus had risen from the dead. There are a dozen other scenarios that are available. Bard Ehrman is an American New Testament scholar. He is an atheist and a skeptic, and he points out the numerous other possibilities available other than resurrection. So let me give you a theory, just one I dreamt up. I could dream up 20 of these that are implausible, but are still more plausible than a resurrection. Jesus gets buried by Joseph of Arimathea. Two of Jesus' family members are upset that an unknown Jewish leader has buried the body. In the dead of night, these two family members raid the tomb, taking the body off to bury it for themselves. But Roman soldiers on the lookout see them carrying the shrouded corpse through the streets. They confront them and they kill them on the spot. They throw all three bodies into a common burial plot where within three days, these bodies are decomposed beyond recognition. The tomb then is empty. People go to the tomb, they find it empty. They come to think that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they start thinking they've seen him because they know he's been raised because his tomb is empty. This is a highly unlikely scenario. Bart is right. During my research, I found this story. In 1963, 14-year-old Addie Mae Collins, one of four African-American girls tragically murdered in an infamous church bombing by white racists, was buried in Birmingham, Alabama. In 1998, they made the decision to move Addie's body to another cemetery. When workers were sent to dig up the body, they returned to a shocking discovery. The grave was empty. Hampered by poorly kept records, cemetery officials scrambled to figure out what had happened. Several possibilities were raised, the primary one being that her tombstone had been erected in the wrong place. Unsurprisingly, in the midst of determining what happened, one explanation was never suggested. Nobody suggested that Addie Mae had been resurrected to walk the earth again. Why? Because an empty grave doesn't necessitate a resurrection. How do we know the body wasn't stolen? How do we know that Jesus' body even made it to the tomb? This has always been one of the logical explanations in my mind as to why they could not find the body. Until I began to understand the historical account of what happened with Jesus' body immediately following his execution. Records indicate that following Jesus' death, his body was placed in a new tomb, one that had never been used before, by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Check this out. Joseph of Arimathea was a high counselor and a voting member of the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin? The Jewish judicial body that had Jesus condemned to death? 
I have got to assume that the last thing that Joseph of Arimathea wants is to lose the body to give people a reason to claim that Jesus rose from the dead. So, Sanhedrin member Joseph of Arimathea places Jesus' body in the tomb. Records then indicate that the tomb was barricaded by a large stone weighing approximately two to 4,000 pounds. And here's where things get really interesting. The Roman seal was placed on the tomb. The Roman seal was a sign of authentication that the tomb was occupied and the power of Rome stood behind the seal, meaning there was a body in the tomb when the seal was placed on it. Here's another note I found especially interesting about the Roman seal. The Roman seal meant that the tomb was guarded by a military unit called the Roman Guard. The Roman Guard was a 16-man unit that was governed by very strict rules. Each member was responsible for six square feet of space. If a member of the guard fell asleep, he was beaten and burned alive. But he was not the only one executed. The entire 16-man unit was executed if one member fell asleep while on duty. Historians say that Roman guards didn't lose living bodies, much less dead ones. The tomb was secure, like Smithsonian Museum secure, like White House Secret Service secure. Okay, so we know Jesus died. We know his body was securely buried and securely guarded for three days. And then we know his body up and vanished. So what happened? It still feels illogical to suppose that he resurrected from the dead. There is a principle called the principle of proportionality, which demands extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. For the approximately 100 billion people who have lived before us, all have died and none have returned. So the claim that one of them rose from the dead is about as extraordinary as one will ever find. Historian Keith Parsons, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Houston and holds doctorates in philosophy and the history of science argues this point. My argument against the resurrection is simple. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The purported resurrection of Jesus is about as extraordinary as a claim can get. The evidence in favor of the resurrection is not good, so we shouldn't believe it. It is just a matter of common sense that we should place a high burden of proof on extraordinary claims. So why do I say that the alleged resurrection of Jesus was so extraordinary? Well, surely if we know anything about the world, we know that dead people tend to stay dead. He's got a point. The statistical probability of resurrecting isn't in Jesus' favor. Who knows? Maybe Jesus was just a good teacher who died, and his resurrection is a legend that grew over time. It could be similar to the telephone game. Over time, as the message passed from one to another, the details morphed into a fairy tale. Maybe it was a conspiracy. Maybe a few disciples lied for personal gain, and Jesus' followers bought into it. I thought this was possible until Dr. Amy Orr Ewing from the University of Oxford talks about how implausible it would have been for the disciples to lie about the resurrection of Jesus. 
they had a lot to suffer and a huge cost to pay for actually um, propagating this idea of a resurrected Christ. Many of the disciples went on to die gruesome deaths, proclaiming that Jesus had actually um, been, been risen from the dead. So why would they do it? They didn't make financial gain from it. They, they didn't appear to make much progress in their own lifetime from this idea. Critical evidence in any legal case is the testimony of witnesses who, and how many, saw what. The word of eyewitnesses has always been the smoking gun. The scenario has been replayed in countless movies. A man is on trial for a crime he didn't commit. Shortly before a guilty verdict is pronounced, a passionate investigator tracks down a hesitant eyewitness who ultimately testifies and proves the hopeless man's innocence. One word from a credible witness can radically change a jury's perspective in a case. No objection no matter how compelling, can stand up against the word of someone who was there. So is there an eyewitness testimony? Jonathan Morrow, professor and biblical apologist, talks about the overwhelming amount of eyewitness testimony and the opportunity that the ancient opponents had to refute the claims of Jesus' resurrection by going to talk to these eyewitnesses. When you look at these claims made by Paul about the resurrection witnesses and appearing to the 500 and even all the names that show up in the gospel accounts themselves, is that you've got living history. You've got the people who were there to cross-check whatever message is being there. So it's not as though that these things could have been invented and no one would have challenged it. You've got this idea that there's witnesses, go investigate them. And ancient historians loved eyewitness testimony. That's what they all wanted. Livy, Herodotus, that's what they wanted was Thucydides. They all wanted eyewitness testimony to get back to the original. Historical records indicate multiple witnesses. Mary Magdalene, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the 11 apostles, Thomas, who is reported to have initially doubted, Saul of Tarsus, who was an opponent and skeptic of Jesus and was killing his followers, James, Jesus' brother, and 500 other witnesses. If the 500 witnesses were in a courtroom and each testified for 10 minutes, there would be over 83 hours of eyewitness evidence. That feels like an extraordinary amount of evidence to me. Sir Lionel Luckahoo, world-renowned for holding the Guinness World Record as most successful lawyer for his 245 consecutive murder charge acquittals, wrote, I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for reasonable doubt. Okay, that's compelling. But I still can't get around, were these witnesses reliable? Historian Andy Bannister says that the transformation of the early disciples confirmed their reliability. And again, historians take it as a given that something dramatic happened. In fact, the Jewish historian Pinkas Lapide once remarked, he said, we have to ask the question as historians, what transformed the first Christians from a terrified bunch of men and women in fear of their lives to the most self 
confident missionary force in world history. What transformed those disciples? And we have to remember, of course, that almost many of, many of the first Christians gave their lives and died uh, for uh, proclaiming the truth of the resurrection. And as another historian remarked, liars make bad martyrs. There was a similar court case in the early 1970s. You may have heard it called Watergate. Charles Colson, who once served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon, famously went to prison for his involvement in the Watergate scandal in the early 70s. One detail regarding Watergate was similar to the resurrection. In both cases, 12 men claimed something that would affect world history. In the case of Watergate, it only took two weeks for them to crack under pressure. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. So what do we do with these 12 powerless men, peasants really, who were not facing just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus' body raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of the apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities. None did. Dr. William Lane Craig points out that this was not true of only the disciples, but also of Jesus' brother, James. Now, think of this. What would cause James to move from becoming an unbeliever and skeptic about his older brother to being willing to die for his belief in Jesus as Messiah. Jesus' crucifixion would only confirm in James' mind that his older brother was delusory. Can there be any doubt that the reason for this transformation in James is what Paul says, then he appeared to James. Now, most of us have brothers. What would it take for you to believe that your brother is the Lord so that you would be ready to die for that belief? Can there be any doubt that this transformation in James is due to the fact that he did experience an appearance of Jesus risen from the dead. It's funny to think about what it would take to believe that one of my siblings is God, the devil maybe, but to believe that one of them is God would take some undeniable evidence. And then to be so convinced that they were not only God, but they had raised from the dead to the point I was willing to die for it feels like an impossible fact to avoid. What would it take for you to believe that? Could this be true? Could Jesus' body that had just up and vanished really have been raised from the dead? Was this obscure Jewish rabbi really the son of God and savior of the world? If he really died on that Roman cross, medical historical fact if his body was securely protected and meticulously presided over from the time of death to the time of burial, if his body was intensely guarded by a trained Roman guard who faced the punishment of death for losing his body, 
if 500 plus eyewitnesses claim to have seen him alive, claim to have spoken with him, touched him, eaten with him, and if hundreds of people, including Jesus's brother, James, were willing to die for their claims of his resurrection, then I have to ask myself, what is the more likely conclusion? Why would these men die? Nothing to gain, everything to lose. Why would Saul of Tarsus go from killing Christians to dying for the religion he once persecuted? And why, for 2,000 years, has no one been able to produce a better explanation for what happened to this missing body? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did He prove His claims to be God? Did He defeat death, sin, and hell for all mankind? Or did He just up and vanish? The choice is up to you.